We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show here on MPW Digital. I'm Neil McCready, joined as always by the chair of the Economics Department at the University of Mississippi, one Dr. Josh Hendrickson. Josh, how are you, sir? Doing great. Appreciate you being here. Happy November. Hope you had a good uh, Halloween, some trick-or-treating, rob some candy. No. what I will say, like, one of the things that I love about Oxford is they always do this announcement where they're like, trick-or-treating is from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., which is the same, you know, literally anywhere in the United States, everywhere I've ever been. It's always six to eight. And what always happens is about five fifteen, people are just like, it's about six. <laughs> <laughs> and so things just start. They just know? get started. Yeah. yeah. It's close enough. Um, all right. I want to jump into this a little bit. Last week at rebelgrove.com, uh, someone posted a thread. I don't remember exactly. This is my fault. I should have saved it. It's been a busy couple of weeks. I cover Ole Miss football, which has been kind of busy. Basketball's kind of getting rolling. This is the time of the year where there's an overlap and you get a little slammed. I forgot to save it. But it was generally, if I recall correctly, GDP numbers were put out that the current administration, the Biden administration, sort of harped on. And a lot of their followers uh paraded those numbers like see things are getting better and it was interesting to see the reaction on my message board which was a lot of people who uh don't agree with this administration would like to see this administration ousted one way or the other essentially said it's bullshit i don't believe it to which some of the people who lean left and like this administration. We're like, well, what, what don't you believe? Is this another conspiracy theory? Why don't you believe it? Give me some examples. And it led into this debate. And I said, Hey, I'll ask Josh about this. I'm curious. These numbers come out. Some people don't like them. Some people love them. There does seem to be, and I don't want to be partisan here, although everyone knows where, which way I lean on this. There does seem to be the numbers come out, and then a few weeks later, the numbers sort of get corrected a little. That doesn't ever make the mainstream media as much as the initial numbers of, look, everything's great. It's getting better. And why is it two things? Are the numbers, when they first come out, are they, are they, are they accurate? Are they trustworthy? And if not, why do we do this song and dance? I think that those initial numbers are just the initial estimates. And so what's going to happen is over the next 
few months, uh, they're going to be able to measure these things more precisely. And so as they do that, then that's why you get accurate measurements. But that's also why you tend to see big numbers um, get revised down or really small numbers get revised up is that there's just a lot of noise in the data. And so it's kind of like mean reversion, whatever the real number is. Like sometimes, you know, the initial number is a little too high. Sometimes the initial number is a little too low. Um, also, I wouldn't pay as much attention to the headline number as um, to like different components and, and things. So when they, when they release data, I mean, there's, and, and, and by the way, I'm not to interrupt yeah. you. I'm going to, I'm going to clarify because I did fi- kind of find one of the articles. Yeah. U.S. economy drew, grew a strong 4.9% driven by consumer spree that may not last. This is a headline in the wall street journal. Um, U.S. economic growth surged this summer at the fastest pace since 2021 as consumers spent at a blockbuster rate that will be difficult to sustain. Gross domestic product, GDP, expanded at a 4.9% seasonally and inflation-adjusted annual rate in the third quarter, more than double the second quarter pace, the Commerce Department reported. The acceleration won't change the Federal Reserve's plans to hold rates steady at their meeting next week, which ended up being today, and they did indeed hold the rates steady. Uh, Both are warning signs, but there are warning signs underlying the eye-popping numbers. Americans saved less, and their incomes adjusted for inflation fell over the summer. That could mean the pace of spending will ease in coming months. Business investment also stalled. Meanwhile, rising long-term interest rates, wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, and the possibility of a partial government shutdown could cause economic cracks to emerge. I apologize for interrupting, but that was to clarify. That was kind of the the headline that came out was this 4.9% growth. Well, I think, so real GDP typically gets all of the headlines because real GDP is fundamentally what we care about in the sense that real GDP is measuring total production adjusted for inflation. And so if that is rising then that's a sign that we're actually producing more stuff. That's a sign that people's incomes are going up. And so we like that. Uh, You know, we like that. But there are a couple things here. From about 1983 until 2007, nominal GDP, which is just the current dollar value. So that's unadjusted for inflation, just current dollar value. From about 1983 until 2007, nominal GDP grew at 5% a year. This latest number that people are are touting, they're ignoring the fact that nominal GDP grew at 8.5%. And what that tells us is, is that the Federal Reserve uh, might not have inflation as under control as, we, as some people might think. Because the Fed can actually affect nominal GDP. It has very limited effect on real GDP. But nominal GDP, it can affect because it controls the money supply. So if we're just looking at current dollar prices, you know, I mean, if the if the Federal Reserve tomorrow was like, we're going to add a zero to the end of every every denomination of currency, then all the prices would go up tenfold and nominal GDP would go up tenfold. But none of us would be wealthier. None of us would be better off. And and the point is, is that even smaller changes in the money supply are going to have the same sort of effect on on prices and on nominal income. But nominal income of eight and a half percent is way too high. And so. Um, what that suggests is that um, the Fed was uh, still too expansionary during that time. And so if they were still too expansionary, um, there's reason to be concerned that they don't have inflation under control. And actually, if you look at data, 
over the last three months, what do we see? We see the stock market going down. We see yields going up. And we see gold going up. We see Bitcoin going up. Why are these things all happening? Well, individually, we don't know much about why those prices would change. But when they're all moving in that direction, like yields going higher either means that people expect higher inflation or higher growth. But if they expect higher growth, you'd also expect stock prices to go up, but they're going down. Well, if people expect higher inflation, they're going to expect stock prices to fall because higher inflation is going to eat away at people's purchasing power. They're going to buy less stuff. So stocks go down. That's what we're observing. You know, when when gold goes up, like when Bitcoin goes up, those are things that go up because people are trying to get away from uh, from from counterparty risk, right? So there is no counterparty. Like if I own gold, I just own gold, right? Nobody, like um, you would have to physically come take it from me. And so um, those kinds of things are, well, if you think that um, the dollar is going to have less purchasing power, then you want to get into something like that. So we have those things going up, the stock market going down, yields going up. That suggests that people expect inflation to go higher. Then we look at this GDP number and we see that, you know, nominal GDP is eight and a half percent is growing at eight and a half percent. That's too high. And so there's a lot of market indicators that are suggesting that this isn't under control yet. And the concerning part is, is that it, it's kind of unclear whether um, we're going to reach a point where the Fed can't actually do anything about it. Because one reason people might be concerned about inflation is they look at the government and they say the government's accumulating way too much debt. And the only way we're going to be able to pay this back is for the Fed to go out and buy it, which is monetizing the debt, which creates inflation. And so we might be at a point where the market's saying, look, we think the Fed is doing what it can do, but we're not convinced that the federal government is doing what it should be doing. And if they're not going to get their act together, then we're going to see inflation regardless of whether the Fed um, is vigilant or not, because they'll have no choice at some point. Okay. Next question. Sort of along those lines. I, uh, I try not to just absorb everything off social media. I try to go, go get news from a couple of different news sources so that I feel quasi-informed. Yet I typically, and I've told you this before, and it's not just lip service, sometimes when I'm talking to people like you, I feel even stupider than I probably actually am. And I, I read headlines in the Wall Street Journal. Okay, These are just headlines. And they blow me away a little bit. Workers keep getting big raises. That's a problem for the Fed. That's the headline. Wage and in benefits increases have eased but remain strong as central bank officials tackle high inflation. I'll be honest, I've had people try to explain this to me and I'm confused. Because to me, workers getting big raises is a good thing. Right? The more money you have, the more spending power you have. The more spending power you have, the more you'll spend. The more you spend, the more the economy. That's the way my feeble little brain works. But look, I'm just a dumb sports writer. Uh, I love this one. Greg Ipp wrote this in the Wall Street Journal. The economy is great. Why are Americans in such a rotten mood? Well, I, I would argue with Mr. Ipp's assertion here that the economy is not great. Because if the economy were great, Americans would not be in such a rotten mood. And I would also further point out that I think we all know why Americans are in such rotten moods. Why are we having such a hard time dealing with the realities of why Americans are in such a horrible mood? So in my experience, when things are going well, you don't have to tell people they're going well. They kind of uh, yeah, <laughs> they kind of know it. I don't have to go to a bunch of Ole Miss fans today and go, hey, man, Lane Kiffin's doing a pretty good job. You know, really, he is. 
Really, if you think about it, Lane Kiff is doing a pretty good. No, they know. Right. They get it. Like, hey, it's a sellout Saturday. It's going to be 71 degrees and sunny. Texas A&M's coming to town. They got a chance to get to 8-1. and one. They're favored to get 8-1. and one. I don't have to tell. I don't have to talk some Ole Miss fans into, hey, it's right there. Now, if I were to go up to see my girls in Arkansas and I sat down with some Arkansas football fans and I was trying, I was trying to tell them, hey, look, hey, Sam's got this thing closer than you think, okay? He, I mean, you change a play here and a play – I mean, look, they only lost to Alabama, LSU, and Ole Miss on the road by 13 points. You're right there. Now, that's, that's me telling some people who would, in their minds, going, we suck. Where this is over, let's fire the coach. Let's get a new coach, right? I don't have to do that in Oxford. If I sit down with five Ole Miss fans at a booth, I don't have to talk them into getting pretty fired up about Lane Kiffin. They're already there. So when you're right, when this stuff starts like this, I'm like, whoa, someone's trying to talk me into talk me into something. I know when I go to the grocery store, Josh, when I go to the pump, when my effing taxes come out like they are, that everything's not great. We're raising taxes. You don't have to tell me we're, we're not raising them. I see the raise. We're doing all these things. And when, so when the, I read the headlines, and I'm like, oh, no, everything's good. I'm, 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 I'm a little skeptical. I think that if you live in D.C., you probably think things are fantastic. I mean, this is an example of how out of touch that the media is. They, okay. They're completely out of touch. They, you know, things are great in D.C. D.C. is spending a bunch of money. Uh, they tend to spend a bunch of money on things that benefit firms that are located around Washington, D.C. So things are great. The The idea, but but the very idea that you have to explain to people that something is good is just preposterous. And a curious person would actually try to ask the question, if I'm looking at the data and I think things are so good, why does everybody think things are bad? And the conclusion that these journalists come to is – well, they're just, they just don't get it. They don't see the numbers or they're too dumb or they don't know any economics or whatever. This is, um, it's always that these people just don't get it. But people are living their everyday lives. Like, um, I don't know, like when in the 90s, I recall people being like really happy, right? Like the economy was growing, the stock market was going up. People were happy. I don't recall, like I remember listening to my parents, you know, talk to my aunts and uncles and grandparents and things. And everybody seemed optimistic. Everybody seemed like things were going well. No one had to walk in there and say, hey, guys, listen, it's actually great. It's actually great. No, like people uh, had that feeling. The What's going on now is you have a bunch of people who don't think things are going great. And then you have people lecturing them that they are. But the reason is they don't understand what people think about, right? Like they think that if the inflation rate is coming down, that people should be happy because if the inflation rate's coming down, well, that means that the Fed is doing its job. It's bringing inflation down. Things are getting better. You should be happy. But the problem is, is that a lower inflation rate just means prices are rising at a slower rate than they were before. It doesn't mean that prices are going down. It means they're just not rising as fast. And what people care about is not so much prices. It's not so much what the price of stuff is. It's what the price is relative to their earnings, relative to their wages, relative to their income. So if their income isn't rising to keep up with prices, 
They don't care that inflation used to be 9% and now it's 3% because if their wages are only up 2%, they still feel poor because they are poor. Their money's not going as far. Yeah. And so to tell these people, oh, no, things are great. Look at all this disinflation. No, prices are still going up. They're just going up at a slower rate. And that slower rate tends to be higher than a lot of people's incomes. Real wages are falling. And so the idea that things are going great is, is sort of preposterous. And then on the other article, the other article is, uh, this is an argument that floats around in the financial press um, all the time. And that is, you know, oh, like people's wages are going up. This is a disaster for the Fed. This is, is a 50-year-old idea. <laughs> and it's a 50-year-old idea that was debunked a long time ago. It's this idea that like what causes inflation is that the cost of stuff goes up. Like, oh, labor costs go up, and so firms are going to have to increase their prices. And that just begs the question, well, why are people's wages going up? Who's raising their wages? Why? What, what made their wages go up, right? Oh, like things are more expensive. Oh, like, uh, you know, the grocery store had to pay more for bananas. Why? Why did the price of bananas go up? Right. So their, their argument is, like, they don't have a cause. They just have this idea that, like, oh, it's these, it's these costs that are going up, and then, you know, firms have no choice but to raise their prices and pass along these higher costs to consumers. But then they don't have a theory for why the costs are going up. And I mean, the cost of beef has gone up. And when someone dares to ask, well, why has the cost of beef gone up? Nobody really wants to dive into that answer. Probably well, because it's, it's, it's not the most politically correct answer in the world. You're, you're, you're making it much more difficult on ranchers to produce the beef. Well, and you should never ask people why... Um, you should never ask people why prices are going up anyway. Like, um, if you ask somebody why prices are going up, all they're going to do is give you your, their perspective, right? Like, if I go to the butcher and I say, why is beef, why are beef prices higher? What he's gonna, probably going to tell me is, it's like, well, you know, the guy that I buy beef from is charging me a higher price. Yeah. Okay, well, okay, so that makes it sound like, okay, this is driven by costs. But think about this. In reality, what happens is, is that, the Fed expands the money supply. The federal government sends out checks to everybody. What do people do? They take those checks and they go buy things. One of the things that they go buy is beef. So they go and they buy more beef. And the butcher has extra beef. When you go there, like, it, it, like he doesn't have to cut it fresh, right? Like there's always some beef in the, in the case, right? And you go and you pick out the beef that you want. But when demand is high... At the, you know, like before the end of the day, he starts to run out of beef. And so he's got to order more beef. But he's not the only butcher ordering more beef. Everybody needs more beef. So then all these butchers start ordering more beef. Well, then, you know, the, so now there's an increase in demand for beef. So their suppliers now start charging them higher prices. And those suppliers charge them higher prices. Then they pass along some of those higher prices to consumers and if you ask them, they'll say, oh, yeah, it's just costs are going up. I, you know, nothing I can do about it. But the cause is the consumer. The cause was the fact that people had all this extra money in their pocket and they went out and bought the beef. The fact that the butcher observes this as a higher cost doesn't tell us anything about why the price actually went up. And so all these people who have these cost-based explanations don't seem to understand that like, they can't even identify why the costs are going up. And you can't identify whether costs are going up by asking people because the people involved, like all they know is their unique circumstances. They're not like, uh, you know, like they're, they're not studying the market for beef. Like they see that the price of beef goes up and then they charge more for beef. It's, it's as simple as that. 
What we're dealing with here is a wage price slinky, said David Kelly, chief global strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Wages and prices are both coming down the stairs. They're just doing it slowly. Can you walk me through that like I'm five? Well, one thing that people worry about is they worry that when wages go up, well, people worry that this is going to perpetuate inflation, right? So you, you have inflation and the prices of goods tend to adjust faster than the price, than your wage, right? Like typically like you only get a raise like every year or whatever, right? Right, Like it's, you don't, you don't get one like once a week, but prices change every day. Right. And so what tends to happen is that initially prices go up and then after those prices go up, people observe these higher prices and then they demand higher wages. Right. When it comes time to get a raise, like they're not willing to work for the same wage anymore because everything's more expensive. And so they either go get another job or they negotiate a higher wage or whatever the case may be. And what some people seem to think is that what perpetuates inflation is that the prices go up. And then wages go up. But then when wages go up, now the costs have gone up, so they got to raise prices again. And then that raise in, uh, that increase in prices is going to cause workers to demand higher wages, which is going to cause you know higher prices, which is going to cause higher demand. You know, and it just it's a perpetual cycle. That's one thing that people worry about. It's nonsense, and it's nonsense because the the increase in the wage to compensate for those higher prices that's the correction. That's the market correction. That's not a, like, yes, costs go up. But what happens is, is that because wages adjust slower, when there's inflation, initially companies are just earning more profit because they're able to charge a higher price, but they're still paying the same wages. But over time, workers' wages start to go up and they're going to continue to go up until workers become happy with their wage relative to prices. And so that just correct. And so that's the market correction. But they treat these things as just every single one of these things is just a complete like this just drops from heaven, right? Prices just go up, then wages just go up, and people are constantly responding to these things. But this is just markets working. And so what this guy's talking about is there's too there's way too much focus on like what wages are doing. Because they tend to think, oh, like if wages are going up too fast, then prices are gonna have to go up. No, the wages are rising because prices went up. Yes. And they seem to think that these wages are going to make prices go even higher, but that's not, that, that's not the case. That's not what happens. What, you know, you go, this, this idea originated in the 1970s and we had very, very high rates of inflation because there were people at the fed. There were people at the white house who were very convinced that this is what the cause of inflation was. It's just like higher costs. And there was nothing you could really do. Like the monetary policy couldn't stop this, you know, like this would require legislation or something. It would require, you know, not letting unions negotiate new contracts or something. And they made all these claims. And then when Paul Volcker took over as Federal Reserve chairman, he said, no, that's not what causes inflation. What causes inflation is when we print too much money. We're going to stop printing too much money and we're going to get rid of inflation. And that's exactly what happened. And so that whole episode and the prior, you know, decade to that demonstrated that the cause isn't these random changes in costs or prices. The the actual cause of inflation is just excess money growth from the Fed. They print too much money. Prices go up. We're still paying for the 2020 thing. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, along those lines. I think this pissed me off before it pissed you off because I think I found it first. Um, Scott Galloway, professor of uh, New York University Stern School of Business. New York University Stern School of Business. Quote, I was on the board of my kids' school during COVID. I wanted a harsher lockdown policy. In retrospect, I was wrong. The damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risk. But here's the bottom line. We were doing our best. We were doing our best, he says, Josh. But let's give a little grace. Grace, he says. And forgiveness. Forgiveness. I feel like I'm back. For the shit show that was COVID. All right, I'm going to be honest with you. My response to this, okay? Then I'll let you tell me that I'm right or wrong. Bullshit. No. I give you no grace. No. I give you no forgiveness. No, I do not. Why? Because during the pandemic, which started in in March of 2020, by May of 2020, there was data. There was data. I probably won't vote in the state election because I don't care. But if I do go vote, here's the truth. I will go vote for Tate Reeves. And the one reason that I will vote for Tate Reeves, who I don't think I would like in real life, is he did sort of fight for people during COVID. Maybe not as hard as I wanted him to, but at least I thought he was in the ring. If I vote for him, it'll be for that. No other reason. But no grace. No forgiveness. You sons of bitches haven't apologized one time for what you've done. You haven't put uh, Anthony Fauci at least on trial. You haven't at least condemned him in the Senate. Nope. You haven't said one time the magic three words, right? We were wrong. I'm sorry. Pretty basic stuff. When your kid goes to school and does something really stupid, you ultimately give him some forgiveness. But he has to do a couple of things first. He has to admit, Dad, I was wrong. And Dad, I'm sorry. And then you say, okay, well, lesson learned. You know, We'll move on from this. They've not done any of that. Oh, no. Oh, no. But now they want, when the evidence is overwhelming, that you mishandled it, you knew you were mishandling it, and so you doubled down because you can't admit you're wrong and made it wronger. And now that we're seeing the results of all the damage that was done to jobs, to businesses, to the economy, most of all to young people who had no say in this, the mental health, the destruction, the, 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 the role that's played on in academics. You talk to people in academia, they'll tell you that kids who lived through that at a young age, their math skills are down, their learning skills, their, their reading skills are down, their communication skills are down. No, no. The shit show that was COVID was caused by you people who are now turning around going, hey, we need a little grace. Show us we were doing the best we could. I mean, pardon me for just a minute. I'll, I'll do it the general. Screw off. No, go straight to hell. No, absolutely not. But that seems to be this new thing now out there. Hey, we really tried hard. No, no, you people need to disappear. 
You need to go stand in the corner for a long time and think about what you did. And then come back, and after you do the lines on the chalkboard, apologize. Say you were wrong and say, we'll never do this again. Sorry. You saw this after I did and sent it to me. By then, I had already combusted on on social media. The thing that kills me about it is we did the best we can. No, you did not. You did like, the worst you could. Like, you like we had data. We had data. We had data that said, you know, that kids could go to school and that they were not getting sick. You know, there was evidence that they weren't getting sick. It didn't seem to also be spreading at the schools and then showing up in the houses, which is what they they sort of claimed. The thing here is is that we had this data and we had it from Europe. It's not like this was like data from Siberia or something. This is not like we don't have good access to the data. This is data from Europe that was covered at the time. And there were people talking about it at the time. Yes. Here's the data. The schools should be open. That's what people were talking about. So to say you did the best you can, no, you didn't. You ignored the data. Yeah. You ignored the data and said, no, I know better. I know better about this disease that three months ago we never heard of. This, I know better. And it's completely preposterous. You see this with kids at school. This is not, this is not acceptable. Uh, we screwed an entire generation of students. And actually what I should say is, is like, it's a subset. Because there are actually some kids who have really good parents or who went to really good schools. And their parents and their schools took it really seriously and made sure... That they got the educate that that they got as much of an education as they could, and other people went to schools that kind of phoned it in, that let their standards go, that let people get away with stuff, that gave them forgiveness for anything. Oh, just turn in the assignment whenever you want, and it completely changed their attitudes. It completely changed their expectations, and now they're screwed because now they're going into the real world, and all these people expect them to do things the way that things have always been done, and they don't realize that this is the standard expectations. They think people are being mean. They think people have unreasonable expectations. And then on the issue of, oh, like, let's have some grace. No, this is a tactic. I talk about this all the time. This is a tactic of the left. They do this all the time. They appeal to your values and they say, like, look, you know, we made a mistake. Can't you forgive me? You know, um, just give us a little grace. The choice of the word grace instead of forgiveness is deliberate, right? Because grace has a different meaning. Grace has a more faith-based connotation than forgiveness. And so grace is this idea that like, you know, you guys are good Christian people. Why don't you forgive me? And what people need to wake up to is that they do this. They appeal to your values so that you will uphold your own values and you will forgive them and you will allow them to go on with their life. But if the rules are reversed, they will stab you right in the eye. They won't think anything of it. Nothing. They will just stab you right in the eye. You will go to them and say, you know, I made a mistake. And, um, you know, I just want to ask for forgiveness and they won't even think for one second about giving you forgiveness. That's, that's the way that it's been. I'm not defending them, but I mean, some of the people who were in prison today for walking through the Capitol on J six, they didn't do anything. They just walked through the Capitol. If they said, Hey, you know, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. It was really stupid. It was kind of emotional. I did. I mean, they opened the door and people walked in and I walked in. I shouldn't have walked in. It, It was wrong. I'm sorry. I just would love a little grace and forgiveness. Oh, no, no, no. Hell no. 18 years. 18 years. No, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I look at that and I'm like, I'm not defending the people that walked into the Capitol that day. I mean, you kind of, as I watched it that day, I was like, this is stupid. These, these people are crazy. 
But now I watch this, and, and but here's what here's what heartens me a little. Okay, as we head into the season of of of, of the rebirth and holidays, and a couple of responses. There are a lot of responses, and the majority of the responses are reflected in these two I'm about to read to you. No, we need to never forget that. It doesn't matter that you're now saying you were doing your best. You let your fear grip you, and you lectured everyone by your fear. Some of us tried to tell you, and you ridiculed us. Another says, we were doing our best by silencing and ostracizing the people who turned out to be correct? No, you were not doing your best. You were doing what you were told without thought of question. I do not forgive any of them. No, and they were, and I, I mean. I, so I, what I'm, I'm wondering, is this the beginning of, see, I keep thinking this is a topic that's going to come up. And this, I'm not making this about the presidential election. I'm making this about kind of all elections a little bit. People haven't really had a chance to really go to the polls since it's come out that, no, it was all a lie. Fauci lied. It was a total joke. It could have been avoided, and now we're seeing some of the pain. Right, the kids can't. They can't. They, they're 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 failing. They can't learn. We have suicide rates are high. All the things that that people like you and me talked about back in twenty twenty one. Like this this is this is bad. Like what happened was bad. Not. I'll, I'll give them grace from March of March of of twenty twenty to about the end of May of twenty twenty, and then my grace runs out. Well, and it's not just that. It's that the rules, let's go back. The rules were arbitrary. And I mean that in several different ways. Like the rules were arbitrary. So you were allowed to go out in public and protest. That was fine. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. 
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. But you weren't allowed to go visit your grandmother in like a nursing home. That was not fine. It's unclear why you can't go like it's clear why you can't go to the nursing home is that the elderly people were the most at risk. And so if you're trying to protect those people, um, you know, then you might put protocols in place. But why are you allowed to be in a huge group of people? It was entirely arbitrary. But then not only that, there were so many arbitrary rules. Like I think we talked about this like in Oxford, we had a rule where like you could be in a restaurant, but you couldn't be standing up. This. How does that, how does, that's just an arbitrary rule. So there were all these things that were entirely arbitrary. So when they say like, oh, we were doing our best, it's like, no, these were entirely arbitrary rules. And you, there's no, there was no coherent structure to the rules. There was no coherent pattern to the, to the rules. And what really it boiled down to was what do the people in power value and what do they think you should be allowed to do? Um, because, you know, what's important to them? It wasn't about, you know, uh, it, it was never about coming up with rules to protect the most vulnerable like that. That that wasn't the rule. I mean, the, everything was arbitrary. There's no coherent pattern to the rules. And so the idea that you're doing the best that you can by just making up arbitrary rules, if the best you can do is making up arbitrary rules, like I'm sorry, but like even in that case, you don't deserve forgiveness because you just need to be as far away from a decision making role as possible because you don't know what you're doing. So the this whole thing is preposterous. And there are all these people who now all of a sudden are just like, Oh, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. When do you apologize to the kids? When, 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 when do the apologies come to the kids? I'm curious. I mean, here's the part I've said this to you. I'll make this personal for a minute. Cause I know it's been personal for you too. And we lived in a state where at least the kids got to go back to school. They had to wear a mask all the time and they were tested and they were kicked out for two weeks and all is it was insane. They learned nothing. They had no my son was in the eighth grade, had no homework the whole year. Um did the social distancing thing, kicked him out one day, had to go test out, came back with the negative test and was still told, Well, you can't play soccer tonight until dad said, No, he's playing soccer. So we're, we're you're, you're he's playing soccer. My my daughter, the oldest, spent her sophomore year of college basically confined to a sorority house. She went to college on Zoom. Now, it was it, she ended up making some of the best friends of her life. Okay, there's a positive. She learned nothing. She learned nothing. She learned how to cheat. That's what they did. They learned how to cheat. For those of you who had SAEs at the University of Arkansas, as sophomores during 2021, they had an incredible system. I mean, they spent so much ingenuity to come up with it. Genius, frankly. I applaud them. Had they spent that amount of time studying, they would have made the same grades. But that's, that's not it's immaterial. I forgive them. So there's forgiveness, grace. <laughs> um, my, my other daughter was a, was a senior in high school. You only get one senior year of high school. Had a prom canceled. Um, she was on the dance team. They stuck them in the, this is in Oxford, Mississippi. Now I mean, we, we were pretty woke back then. Cause it was cool to be woke, right? 
$5,000 uh, spheres and cool to be woke. But it was cool. Masking was cool. It was cool. Everything was cool. Put them in the end zone at night outside because they couldn't be too close to the cheerleaders. Completely disregarding the fact that those same kids, cheerleaders and dance team girls, were all buddies and they hung out together before and after said game. But we needed that display. But the point is not what happened to my kids. The point is that in comparison to what happened to my kids and your kids, Josh, in Mississippi, there were states all over this country where they didn't go to school that year. They didn't get football. They didn't get dance teams. They didn't get anything. You don't take a year and a half or more away from young people and expect them not to be, pardon my French, totally fucked up. And when they are, when do we apologize? When do we say, how do we fix this? It's too late. When do you, what, what do you do? How's that work? That's what seems to get lost on the people. It's all when people go, why are you still so mad about COVID? My response is, why are you not? Because if enough of us were still mad, there would be changes. There would be accountability. There's been no accountability at all. I think the reason people aren't mad enough is that they don't recognize the problem that we're in. Like, I think the reason that some people are willing to forget about it or forgive and forget or just as time passes, they don't care as much. I think part of it is that they, it was just a thing that happened. It was an isolated thing, right? Once in a lifetime, hopefully, right? And they, you know, and it was chaotic and it was, you know, it was a disaster and, you know, but it was unprecedented. And what do you do? Right. I think there are a lot of people who have that kind of attitude or they just want to forget it. They just want to be like, eh, you know, like I just want to be done with that. I just my problem is, is that this revealed something important. It revealed how utterly contemptible and how uh, utterly incompetent a lot of our institutions are and the people who are running those institutions. Mm -hmm. They are in positions of power where they've never had to make hard decisions where they've never had to do the difficult thing. And when something came along, they were unprepared and they made lots of mistakes. They never apologized and they mocked the people who would tell them that they thought they were doing the wrong thing. And even now, some of them still mock people for saying that, you know, they were doing the wrong thing. So some of them, I mean, you know, this guy is asking for grace, but a lot of them aren't even bothering. A lot of them are just like, oh, well, let's just move on. Mis mistakes were made. And, to me, the biggest thing was just an eye-opening experience about how corrupt and incompetent our institutions actually are and that the people who are running these institutions have no idea what they're doing and that they need to be replaced by people who do know what they're doing. And until we get competent people in charge, we're going to continue to have problems just like this. Maybe the magnitude will be bigger. Maybe the magnitude will be smaller, but we're going to get problems. We're going to get problems because there are people in positions of power who have never had to make hard decisions, who have lived the easy life, who have been bureaucrats, for so many years without criticism, without a, without being in the public eye, and then all of a sudden when they're thrust into the public eye and they've got to make big, important decisions, they're super confident in their ability, and it's an ability that they don't have. So I have a theory that is going to pick on your field a little bit. It's that a lot of the people who make these decisions come from academia. Again, they're not in touch with the real world. 
So I'll quote a uh, college professor that I know named Josh Hendrickson from Twitter who tweets, I believe this is your tweet. Sure looks like you. Says, uh, I've been in meetings in which people have referred to the word freedom as jingoistic and a, quote, dog whistle for the wrong kind of students, end quote. The very notion of a wrong kind of student gives away the game. I'm curious, two things. What was the response that you got from that? And, uh, and two, can you sort of fill us in? Because this is, this is happening at Ole Miss. And so if this is happening at Ole Miss, just imagine how much it is at Berkeley. Well, at Berkeley, they're busy trying to get the, uh, the, the woman who's sexually harassing one of the instructors her job back. So they're kind of busy at the moment. Yeah, that's true. Um, they did hold up a football game for a little while. Well, you know. Um, I wonder how that would go over at Tuscaloosa. Well, you know, I mean, at Cal, they were probably like, oh, this is good for us. The longer they stay here, maybe the more tired USC will get. And then we can get almost worked. Yeah, I mean, it was a good strategy. Only yeah. lost by one. <laughs> so this quote. Uh, can you imagine, how long would the kids last in Tuscaloosa at midfield on Saturday? Oh, they pulled that off before the LSU game. Not at all. I mean, you saw the guy, <laughs> you, you saw the kid who ran on the field and like one of the security guards, uh, you know, I mean. Oh. Probably got recruited afterwards. Oh, I mean, he obliterated he, him. Yeah, he's, he's now playing linebacker for Kansas. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So this quote, um, we have a lot of studies at Ole Miss, right? There's a lot of programs that have studies in the name. Yeah, uh, most of these are like minor uh, programs, and um, so there was a guy. Um, in the college, who decided that he wanted to make a freedom studies minor. And he basically said, look, the way it would work is, you know, with a minor, you just got to take six classes. And so what you would take is you would take some classes uh, in economics and learn about what economic freedom means. And you'd take some philosophy classes and you would learn about how people have thought about freedom, you know, across, um, across time. And you would take history classes and you would learn about the American Revolution and, you know, the emancipation from slavery and other battles for freedom, you know, throughout human history. Okay. And that was his idea. And you would have thought that... I mean, it's actually, I'm going to give him some credit. That sounds like a, a, a fairly, a person who would take those classes, if those classes were taught well, that person would come out with an understanding of some things. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of the point. It's of, a minor, right? It's not. Yeah. It's it's just you know, a lot of kids have majors that have a lot of elective hours, and if you were to take eighteen of those hours and dedicate it to that, you would enhance and broaden your education. Well, and a lot of majors actually require that you have a minor, and so you know, yeah. if you, you got to pick a minor, you know, you should pick one that you're interested in. Yeah, and that, and that would be interesting. And that one was the idea is that this is kind of what a liberal arts education is supposed to be, right? You go to like a philosophy class, and you're going to read you know, Aristotle and, um, you know, all the ancient philosophers and then, you know, but then you're also going to read more modern philosophers and you're going to see how opinions about freedom have changed over time and how the definition of freedom has changed over time. You know, in economics, you're going to learn, uh, about policy, about the role of government, about, you know, uh, when should the government get involved? When should they not get involved? What is it, you know, um, what are the pitfalls of, uh, of policy? You know, um, if the market does a bad job, should the government always get involved or maybe because maybe the government does a worse job, all these kinds of things. Um, how do institutions shape people's decisions when you have, you know, strong societal institutions, you tend to have more economic growth. And so the relationship 
between those institutions and freedom and growth is, is an important uh, idea. Okay. History, of course, like the struggle for freedom is throughout history, right? So it yeah, kind I of... Mean, you know, I, 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 I'm a firm believer, no joke, I'm a firm believer that to pass, to graduate high school in America, you should have a very firm, thorough understanding of the American Revolution. Now, now I'm, I, that is clearly a, an opinion that people disagree with. I, I'm, I'm adamant that I'm right. You should understand what exactly the American Revolution was, how long it took for it to happen, and, and what it meant that day for those people to sign the Declaration of Independence, what, what that meant that day. That was, that was not, hey, we're free. Okay, that's that. Um, we're good. What time? What time y'all want to go to the game, Bob? No, I, hey John, uh, saw you sign your name real big there. That's pretty. That's pretty big. Uh, cool signature. You want you want to go to the pub now? No, it was. I mean that was that was John Hancock going. Hey, oh, come and get me. Come and get me. And and oh by the way, and if you get me, you'll probably get, kill my family too because this is a big middle finger to to the the, the British monarchy. That's what that was. I mean, it doesn't get taught that way because some of those people in a different era of history weren't perfect. So to me, this seemed like uh, he, he came and talked to me about it ahead of time, um, mostly because it was going to involve economics classes. He wanted to make sure I was on board, and I thought it was a good idea. Yeah. In fact, I thought it was a fairly like innocuous idea. Like People propose things all the time, and sometimes they propose crazy things, and this didn't strike me as crazy, so I was like, okay, and I didn't think anything of it. Okay. We had three meetings about it. <laughs> three 90-minute meetings okay. about it. Okay. Um, we had people who said that you couldn't study freedom because freedom is just, it's not like it's not tangible. It's just, a, it's just an idea. And what does that idea even mean? Well, that's the freaking point. <laughs> what does freedom mean? That can be part of, like, that's, that could be one of the philosophy classes. Like, yes. what does freedom mean? Well, you know, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> We were we were also told that you know other studies programs had established uh, curriculum, and that this had no established curriculum. But weren't they proposing to establish said curriculum? Yeah, so it was proposing a curriculum, and they were <laughs> saying, "Well, there's no standard here." Well, there was no standard for any of these studies programs several years ago. In fact, like we have one that isn't offered at many other places um, in the South. And so it therefore attracts a bunch of students to the program. And so um, the idea that it's like taught everywhere or that there's just like these established standards is like, no, like somebody establishes the standards. Like the standards were not like Moses's third tablet, right? Like this is the, um, the, the standards were established by someone. And um, yeah, and then there was just this, uh, it was very clear. I mean, the reason I chose that quote, I could have picked many quotes. There were many, many just zingers uh in these meetings and i could have picked a different quote but the reason i picked that quote is that that gave up the game everybody else tried to cloak their argument in some kind of philosophical argument or they tried to cloak their opposition um as um oh this this is too narrowly focused it needs to be broader or so, or something like that and those criticisms, I didn't really believe. I didn't really think people were serious about those uh, criticisms because they don't bring them up about other things that are more broad. 
and um, and things like that. So the reason I picked this quote was because it gave away the game. It gave away the game that this is political, that they're afraid that freedom is going to attract right-wing students, that right-wing students care about freedom. In fact, you hear people say this on college campuses where they'll say, well, right-wing people care about freedom and left-wing people care about justice. This is preposterous. What was what was the emancipation from slavery about? Was it freedom or justice? It was both. Yes. I was going to say, I, I didn't know that freedom... I didn't know that freedom and justice were binary, if you will. Yeah, they're not opposites. Like, they're not, they're not opposed to each other. Uh, you know, the... It, and what bothered me about it is that it was blatantly political. It was an obvious... Um, it was an obvious sort of um, attempt to stop something that they were ideologically opposed to um, by just coming up with random things. And and the reason that that quote came out is because we had three meetings, because it wouldn't go away, because people kept um, talking about it and we kept having meetings about it. And so the comments got more and more straightforward. They got less and less... Uh, hiding behind the real reason, and they started to reveal the real reason. And it was obvious what was going on. It's, well, you know, if you say the wrong kind of student, that implies that there's a right kind of student. Yes. And so what's the difference? And explain that. Explain who the right kind of student is and the wrong kind of student is. And I'm being repetitive here, but I'm coming back to the same concern that's on my mind. I live in this town. I've lived here for a while now. Um, I've I've been around Ole Miss a lot. If this is happening at Ole Miss, at the University of Mississippi, I can't even imagine the exponential degrees that it is happening at places that are far more radical and extreme than the University of Mississippi. I don't think I think that's fair. Do you? Oh, no. I mean, like if you look around, I mean, just the past couple of weeks, you look around and I mean, we've seen completely insane statements put out by student groups, right? There are student groups that, um, you know, like I, I think we talked about this last time, you know, it's one thing to sympathize with the Palestinians. It's another thing to sympathize with Hamas or to sympathize with the terrorists who are killing innocent people. Like you can sympathize with with the Palestinians. You can even think that the Palestinians deserve better. You can think lots of things. But you had people that were basically like, no, all of these acts of terrorism, they're completely justified and they deserved it. Who deserved it? Women? Children? They deserved it? Like, And you see this coming out. And and here's the thing. This is I always talk about this and I always talk about ideology and how ideology is the thing that we need to worry about because it's ideology that brings down civilization. Yes. And what I mean by ideology is that there are people who have a set of beliefs they sound logically coherent, but they're not based in evidence. They're not based in data. They're just based on this philosophical outlook. And we see this now because things are starting to break when you look at what's happening in Israel and Gaza. Because what, what is happening is, is that you see that these people who are talking about decolonization, um, they mean it. And they mean by whatever means necessary. And so you have all of these people who, who look at these decolonization people, so you have all these people on the left that look at these decolonization people who are also on the left, and they say, I thought we were on the same team, but now I kind of think you're insane. And because you're justifying these things that I can't possibly justify. Right. But the but the problem here is, is that this is what was going on all along. 
like they're just now waking up like the people, the, the, the people that they're calling crazy, they haven't changed. They haven't changed at all. This is what they've been saying all along. People just didn't take them seriously. They didn't take them seriously. The left has a policy. There's no enemies on the left. We don't ever criticize people on our side. Yeah. And, and they kind of, and, and so what they do is they just kind of dismiss like the people who might have, you know, views that are way out of the mainstream and they just kind of ignore them, but they don't condemn them. They don't, you know, shun them. They don't push them out because they need them. They need them to win. And so they use them to win. But it appears that not only were, did they have this no enemies on the left thing, is that I think that they thought that this was all just rhetoric, that people didn't really believe this stuff, but the people clearly believe that stuff. And so now they're waking up to the fact that like, hey, these people on my side, like um, they're not really on my side. Like we believe very different things, even though we come to some of the same conclusions. But of course, the problem is, is they're not going to switch sides and they're not going to do anything about it. They're just going to complain and they're going to say, oh, you know, these people, their heart's in the right place. They're just misguided or, oh, they just have had some bad professors or, oh, they just say crazy things. Um, it's, it's not going to change. Like the, the people have been saying crazy things for a long time and they just didn't get paid attention to. And what we've observed over the last several years is that people feel emboldened to say things. I mean, that was one of the biggest things uh, after Trump was elected is that it sort of moved the Overton window of speech Right where now there was things that were acceptable to say about a president that didn't used to be acceptable to say. But that means that if it's acceptable to say something about a president that it didn't used to be acceptable to say, well, then there's there are other things that you can say in public that normally you might keep to yourself. And what happened is, is that a lot of these crazy views came right to the forefront and a lot of people just ignored them. They just assumed that like, oh, these are just some crazy college students or these are just some crazy college professors. and But they don't criticize them. They just... They just ignore them and, you know, just kind of say like, oh, well, you know, like we have the same objectives, so I'm not going to criticize them. I'm going to let them go. But that's a horrible strategy because now they're seeing that, like, are they on the same side? It's not clear. And but, you know, whether they do anything about it, I doubt it because one side actually believes this stuff. I mean, the thing that you got to worry about is that, you know, the, the problem with like ideologies, this was epitomized by communism, right? Communism was about bringing about this like utopian civilization. If you have a group of people who are convinced that if you just adopt this particular political economic system and it's going to bring about utopia, anyone who stands in your way is standing in the way of utopia. And if they're standing in the way of utopia, all means are justified to achieve your end because they're standing in the way of the perfect civilization. And you can't allow people to stand in the way of the perfect civilization. And so what happens is, is that... You, you had these communist movements that were absolutely ruthless and they were ruthless because the ends were so important that any means was justified to achieve those ends. And now we're seeing that we're living, know, we're living that yes, right now. And now we're seeing yeah. that, that, that attitude still survives and it survives among all these ideologues, just like it always survives among ideologues. And that's why the ideologues are a threat to civilization. It's the world economic forum people. They, they have this idea of like a, a global currency nations without borders. We kind of have one of those right now. Um, and that's taught in the schools. I mean, I'm quoting you again. People are just now waking up to the fact that our elite universities are largely just patronage networks for the modern left. So all these graduates are being produced brainwashed, I suppose, 
there are so many degree programs like, and I'm not even talking about undergrad degrees. I'm talking about graduate degree. There are a number of graduate degree programs where these people have no chance of getting a job with that graduate degree. They, it is, um, the market for, you know, th these, these fields survived because for 40 years, the population of college students was growing. And so you're producing more and more because I mean, you think about it. If you are a professor and you have two, two PhD students that you're advising a year, think about how many PhD students you're producing over the course of your career. If the only place for them to go is academia, unless academia is growing pretty rapidly, you're going to run out of jobs for these people. And that's exactly what has happened in some of these fields. In economics, we don't have this problem because if you get a PhD in economics, even if you can't get an academic job, you can go into the private sector. There are tons of companies and banks and uh, government agencies and whoever who, who will hire you, who will want to hire you. But in some of these fields, these people get advanced degrees. There's nothing that they can do with that advanced degree. And so what do they end up doing? They end up doing something completely different. Well, what a lot of these colleges have done is like they bring back these people. Oh, you can teach some classes. Um, they, um, these people apply for administrative positions. Oh, well, you know, we have this office that's in charge of X and we just need somebody, you know, uh, with an advanced degree who can, who can oversee this department. If you go through and you look at all of these departments and you look at all these admin, administrative positions, they're all filled by people in these degree programs where people don't have a lot of outside options. And so they can't get they cannot get a um, they can't get an academic job. Um, maybe they can get a part-time teaching job or something like that. But that's what ends up happening is they get a part-time teaching job or they get like an administrative position or whatever. And then you have all of these um, accreditation agencies. They're like, well, we're we're here to make sure that the that the universities are teaching what they're supposed to be teaching, and we're going to set rules. Well, what does that mean? That means they're going to set rules. And if they're going to set rules, somebody's got to make sure the university's following the rules, which means you got to have more offices of people who are making sure that the university is following all these rules. Who are those people? Who's going to staff those offices? It's going to be people with these graduate degrees. And so, you know, what you have happening is, is that the ideology that's in these fields permeates the university because all of these people who are in, you know, they come up through these programs and then they get administrative jobs and it permeates the university. And so you have things, I mean, I see things all the time that come out where it's like, this is an event that's being put on and you look at the event and you're just like, how did this get approved? But it's obvious how it got approved because there's no one who put their eyes on this that would ever think that this was inappropriate or it might offend somebody. And so, um, and so it just, it goes on through, but you can have something modest like, uh, a freedom studies minor and that thing, you know, has to be stood up to like, this is the end of the university. It's, it's why I'm, I'm, um, uh, and I was thinking of her the other day because her father, Brad, Brad Gaines, the anniversary of the Chucky Mullins play, the accident, the, the, the Ole Miss Vanderbilt game occurred on. Uh, October the 28th, 1989, and Ole Miss and Vanderbilt just played again on October the 28th of, of 2013. So it was, the it was I guess, whatever, that 34 years or whatever year anniversary of that tragic play. And a friend of 
uh, Brad Gaines and I have a very good mutual friend, and and Brad Gaines spent last Saturday at Chucky Mullins's uh, gravesite, as he does every October twenty eighth, cleaning it, and spending some time. Has never really gotten over the guilt that he shouldn't feel. He didn't do anything wrong. He caught a football with his back turned to Chucky Mullins. It was just a tragic mistake. Tra- thing that happened. Horrible. He does that every October 28th. And his daughter, Riley, who was a very uh, celebrated swimmer at the University of Kentucky, has obviously been someone who's outspoken about women's rights. I mean, th- th- she, her, her stand is not a controversial stand. It is, it is, it is simply that biological males should not be able to compete against biological females in athletics. She's, she has, she says nothing about, about, uh, trans rights, nothing about nothing that that's, that's, uh, that's insulting of, of, uh, of people who choose to have a sex change, people who identify as a different gender or any of those things. Her stance is very clear. And it's because she was impacted by this. She saw it happen. She lost a, you know, accolade or whatever that she should have received because she tied a biological male who was swimming at Pennsylvania. Whenever she goes to speak on a college campus, they have to hire. She has to hire security. Okay. Um, she's been physically threatened numerous times. And I think it was at Penn State, the the, the chancellor, the president, whatever, the head poobah at, at Penn State put out a, a long email to the students about, I realize this is triggering and this is emotional. And it's like, really? A, 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 a woman standing up for, for other women is triggering? I mean, Sage Steele, an, an, an acclaimed uh, journalist, sports broadcaster, I mean, one of the best, excellent, comes from a military family, comes from a biracial family, um, is technically African-American, a former athlete, very, very bright, should be a role model for girls of all races and whatever, right? I mean, just she's very, very bright. So should Riley, for that matter. It takes courage to stand up and say something but those people are triggered those people are targeted those people are ostracized and yet i'm watching this worldwide reaction it feels worldwide and maybe this is a a, a product of me watching too much media and listening to too much media but there is a lot of pro-palestine pro-hamas sentiment that is out there anti-israel anti-semitic sentiment that is out there that strikes me as alarming that tells me that the ideologues in my mind are winning the culture war. So I wonder, like on one hand, I see the response to, hey, give us some grace, give us some forgiveness. Yeah, we kind of screwed it up, but we did the best we could. We thought we were doing the right thing. I, I see that. And on the other hand, I see this fairly visceral reaction. And now the the State Department has come out with, yeah, you know, there's, we're really worried about domestic attacks on Jews. We need to be hyper vigilant. It's, I see that, and I'm, I, I, again, I'm being repetitive, but it's disconcerting to me. I, it makes me wonder which side, if you will, is actually winning.
the only way your ideology can win is you have to tear down everything and replace it with your thing. That's the only way that you can win. And I think that the modern left is going to fail. And I think that they're going to fail because their method of doing that um, is grounded in humiliation. And what I mean by that is, is that it's not enough for you to say, hey, um, you were born a man. You say that you should have been a woman or you say you are a woman. And I'm going to respect that decision. That's one thing to say. Yeah. But they, they, but that's, that's not, that's not enough. What you have to say is like men can get pregnant. Men can menstruate. Like you have to say those things. That's about, but that, they can't. that's an exercise in humiliation. They're yeah. making you say something that you know is false, but they're making you say it. They're making you say it to humiliate you, but also to tear down. And if you don't say it, they'll cancel you. Right. And that's so the, that's the, that's, that's the, that's the strategy, correct? Right. And so they're, what they're doing is, is they're trying to deconstruct every single thing. They're trying to destroy everything that you believe, everything that you hold sacred. They attack Everything, like they attack religion, they attack the family, they attack everything um, that is in their way of perpetuating their ideology. Um, they have no real plan. I, I mean, was, I was going to ask, what is the end game? No, I mean, they have no real plan. I mean, these ideological movements are always some version of like, um, you know, we destroy everything, a miracle happens, utopia, right? That's, that's. <laughs> That's the that's the plan. And so they never really get past step one. I mean, in fact, like um, people criticize like the Soviet Union and they say that like, oh, like the Communist Party did a terrible job at being communist. Well, yeah, if you think that the objective of the Communist Party was to bring about communist utopia, they did a horrible job. If you think that the purpose of the Soviet Communist Party was just to, um, you know, make people like Lenin and Stalin um, give them everything that they wanted, then it worked like a Swiss watch, right? This thing was this was the most effective thing that you could have at that, at that objective. The, the thing is, is that they just want power. They just want power. And the way to get power is, is that they think that everything is arbitrary. And the only thing that determines um, the rules is who's in charge. And, and so the rules are just arbitrary because whoever just happened to be in charge, they set the rules and, you know, the rules suck and we don't like the rules. And so we're going to form our own rules. But to do that, we got to get rid of, we, we got to get rid of the existing rule makers. And so the idea is, is that, you know, you've got to destroy all of these things. You've got to replace them with something else. And you have to completely change how people talk. You have to make them say things that they know are false um, because that's how you defeat them. Because if you make them say things that are false, a lot of people are just not going to say anything because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't believe it. And so they don't want to say it, but they won't say the opposite. So if they say you have to say that men can get pregnant, these people don't like, they just don't say it. They just say, Oh, I'm not going to talk about that. Right. Right. They don't say no, they can't. You don't. And you yeah. see a lot of that with people saying, look, I, I just, I, I can't get involved in that. I, I'll, the, the backlash would be too much. And I'm like, the backlash to speaking an, an understood fact? 
the backlash to simply going to the school board and your and your community and saying it I'm fighting for I'm 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 fighting for something very basic here that 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 biological males should not be able to compete against biological females in female sports. That's that is not a controversial take that men, biological men and biological women are built differently. That is that is a fact. That is a scientific fact that has been established for I don't know a long time. It's obvious. Some things are just obvious. Boys are typically stronger than girls. Doesn't mean they're better or worse. It means they're stronger. And in athletic competitions, there's a reason that when a U14 MLS club team scrimmaged the U.S. World Cup soccer team, a very celebrated soccer team that won championships. That was a great women's soccer team. The boys beat them five to one or eight to one. It was ridiculous. I mean, fourteen and not the not the not the best not the best. wasn't the wasn't the all American fourteen year olds? No, it was it was a, a group of fourteen a group of good fourteen year old players in Dallas. So it was a good team. Probably a team that would 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 win a state championship. You know, they'd probably be pretty good. But there you could put together a better team of fourteen year olds. And they whipped. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious. And, so, and, and, and then you see the, the girl at Nebraska that got spiked in the face, and it, it, it's basically destroyed her health. They want, they want them to wrestle. Well, they don't need to be wrestling. That's dangerous. You would never let your, your eighth-grade daughter wrestle an eighth-grade boy. You wouldn't let it happen because she could get hurt. These are common-sense things, and yet... People are afraid to say anything because, well, you'll get canceled. And then when Riley Gaines speaks up on a college campus, she's just ostracized, ridiculed, she's demonized. Also, this points to this. This points to one of the things too. When she shows up on college campuses, they try not to let her speak. But again, like when some person on the other side shows up to college campuses, if somebody tried to not let them speak, like what would they do? They would appeal to your values again. Don't you believe in freedom of speech? Don't you believe in freedom of expression? And then people would say, oh, yeah, you know, I do. I really do believe in free speech. I guess I should let this person talk. And once again, they will not return the favor. They will not return the favor. They, when when she shows up, they'll be like, nope, we're going to do whatever we can to stop this from happening. And this is all about destruction and humiliation. But also that's that's what people don't seem to understand about like this Israel-Gaza situation is that the radical left does not see like they see this as um western they see israel as like western civilization and they want to and and they want to eliminate western civilization they want to tear it down and start over and so they're they're supporting the palestinians because they want because that's that's their objective their objective is these you know they use these vague notions of like um, decolonization and stuff like that. I mean, the history of that region is so complicated that like, you know, depending on what start date that you choose, you can make an argument that one particular group was more oppressed than the other. And I get that you can make an argument also about who's more oppressed now or whatever, but that's the point is that they are, their objective is 
um, they're anti-civilization. They're anti-civilization, and the, and that's really why they support them. All this other stuff is just ideology. It's just cloaked in this weird ideology. But what they really what what they're really after is they don't like Western civilization, and they want to tear down Western civilization. They want to tear down all of its institutions, and they think it's rotten to the core. And they think that they're somehow going to replace it with something better, which history suggests that they're not. It's fascinating. It really is. I I keep waiting for there to be a – and I think you think it's coming. I hope you're right. Um, I, I keep thinking there's going to be some sort of a social correction that – but the only way correction is seen typically is in the form of either protest, revolution, for lack of a better word, or at the ballot box. That's it. I mean, that's the only way. Well, uh, one thing that people can do is they can actually just say true things out loud. Uh, don't play the game. Don't be afraid to say what you know is true, to state your beliefs. Why should other people be allowed to state their beliefs and not yours? Yeah. I mean, you either believe in freedom of speech or you don't. And if you believe in freedom of speech, but you're not exercising your right to that speech, um, and you're just allowing other people to determine the terms of the conversation, you're going to wake up one day and you're not going to have the right to free speech. Yeah. And so, you know, people have to start waking up to what is really going on here because, I mean, I think the dangerous thing is, is this like no enemies on the left like strategy that they've had for so long is that now a lot of these radical ideologues have made their way into the administration. And so these aren't just people on the outside pressuring people and primarying people. These are people who are getting jobs in the bureaucracies. And then, you know, and so they have the ability to affect things from within, which is way more dangerous than when they're just primarying people and and protesting and putting pressure on their local congressmen. Josh, as always, thanks for the time. Yeah, thanks. That does it for the Josh Hendrickson show. We'll be back uh, in two weeks, middle of Middle of November, November 15th will be our next uh, taping. That'll be pretty close to, uh, to, to Thanksgiving. That the, This big Texas A&M-Georgia swing will be in the history books. Be getting ready for the big game against the academic power, ULM, Ole Miss will. I'm going to tell you, y'all, whoever did the Ole Miss schedule, Josh, they were smart because they played ULM close to finals. This, the amount of you have to start ULM to get the degree you have to start studying like October first for the final exams. It's brutal, academic, rigorous, but it's very, it's very challenging, enlightening. When you finish, it's uh, you're exhausted, but you you came out a better person. That was my experience, at least, at uh, at ULM. It was water skiing and academic rigor. <laughs> it's it's amazing. So uh, we'll come back. We'll talk about all of those things when we do. Um, Thanks to everybody for listening. I appreciate all the feedback that we get on this and um, continue to uh, to search for a sponsor. I understand it's a somewhat controversial thing to speak truths, but uh, we, we, we do. So if you're interested, holler at me or Josh, either one, and uh, we'll make something happen. So until next time, uh, have a great weekend. Take care. 
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.